Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everyone. This week, I'm pleased to welcome John Paul Schaefer, who recently was Executive Director of Building Memphis and now has a new position at People for Bikes. He's going to tell us a little bit about that in a minute. And also Nick Euler, who's the Bikeway and Pedestrian Program Manager at the City of Memphis. Today, we're going to talk about the city's bicycling infrastructure and the culture it supports, where we are today, and looking back and forward a bit as well. And after the break, we'll be talking to our regular commentator, Charlie Santo, more about local transportation systems and other subjects. So welcome, John Paul. Welcome, Nick. Hi. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Great. Yeah, yeah. thanks for the invite. So, John Paul, um, just tell us a little bit about your new position before I ask you my first question. Sure. Um, so I am the director of the Northwest Arkansas Bicycle Business Innovation Team. Um, and our goal really is to get more folks riding bikes, um, which is really the mission of People for Bikes in general. Um, but we're taking kind of a workplace approach um, in the work that we'll be doing, um, I and our, our program manager. Um, we'll be kind of working with um Employers at different levels, so some, you know, will work very intensely with, um, in some cases, will also provide tools for kind of like a DIY approach to um, helping your employees really, you know, whether it's commuting to work, it's taking trips um, during work, or just getting on bikes in general. Um, so, you know, kind of really reaching back into my, my bicycle advocacy and transportation planning uh, skill sets uh, to do this new role. Well, we're going to talk about that, about that skill set today. Um, I was just reflecting that um, I think we first met when you were in uh, graduate school, and I was at Community Development Council, now building Memphis, and I think we worked together on some policy language to update the statewide bike and pedestrian I guess it's not an ordinance at the state level, but that's what I think. That's I think how we met was working on. We immediately did in our relationship. We immediately did a deep dive into policy. So, I think that boded well for for the future. Right as you do. Um, no funny story. Am I actually my first planning meeting at all? in Memphis was, I I think Livable Memphis put on a transit plan. It was something about light rail. It was at Memphis Leadership Foundation's building over on Poplar at the time. Okay. Um, So I think even, we might've met even further back. That could be, that Um, could be. But but yeah. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say, yeah. I mean, it was looking at the city and county ordinances and really the state had updated their laws about, you know, traffic safety and how people biking and people walking um, interact with people driving. 
Um, and then the effort was really to take those state, you know, those modern state laws and kind of update the ordinances here at the local level, which hadn't been touched since probably the 60s. Well, that's a great segue because, you know, over the last decade, um, it's really been transformative locally in terms of the bicycle infrastructure and, you know, building a local biking culture. And you've been, you know, an observer and really a participant and leader of that. And I just wanted to get your reflections on um, what the what this sort of community's journey was like and what were some of the important milestones along the way. I mean, I think when we, when I first met you, I mean, there was two miles of bike lanes on Shady Grove or something crazy. And so we've come a long way. So um, what was that like from your perspective? And like I said, what were some of the milestones that you see? And I'm going to ask you, Nick, as well about, especially about important milestones, but want to hear from John Paul first. Um, Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's several things there. I mean, part of it is, you know, it's a political will issue um, and, you know, kind of a leadership issue where, you know, I think at the time it was, you know, it was during the the recovery from the 2007-2008 crisis. um, And one of the items was, you know, our, uh, the the uh, stimulus funding was coming down, and the, I just remember the the headline version of it was, "We got all this money, and we said we were going to put bike lanes on the streets, but we can't because the sewer grates are pointed the wrong direction." I um, remember that very well. <laughs> and you know, just and there was something similar happening in happening in how we were spending federal money, where we were basically giving full credit for just having a wide outside lane as a bike bike facility, um, and so. You know, it's kind of this mixture of political leadership and then just, you know, on the kind of administrative and, and planning side saying, you know, we need to create some higher standards um, for how we're redesigning or maintaining our streets to create the space for um, uh, folks who are not inside automobiles to be able to get around. Um, you know, certainly, and I was thinking about that, I was like, yeah, the Shady Grove lanes were the only real dedicated bike lanes we have. And then the I remember that first however many miles of Mayor Wharton at the times, uh, 55 miles was over on Horn Lake Road, um, kind of south of um, the interstate over there. Um, And so I think, you know, that one thing that we're going to put, and 55 miles seemed like a lot at the time. We had two uh, on the ground. Um, So, you know, that was a big milestone, just saying we're going to have a very intentional look at our network. Of course, you know, it took several years before that started to really make sense. And I think that was part of the criticism is you have these bike lanes to nowhere. But, I mean, that's just due to the fact that it takes years to rebuild this network. I mean, we've, we've spent decades building the city for cars. Uh, it takes time to kind of reverse that and start to, to rethink those, those spaces. Well, and I can remember incredible battles like the battle to get the city to hire you know, a, a bike and pedestrian coordinator. I mean, things that just were, didn't make any sense for a city our size with the transportation challenges we have. Um, so what what are some like important developments along the way that happened that you can think of like, I don't know, the bike share program or what are some things you thought were important developments that helped move the whole story forward? 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned one, which was creating the position that, that Nick is in now, um, and even over the years, expanding the capacity within engineering to do that, um, you know, to the point where other staff are now, you know, the idea is that everybody kind of knows what, what um, how we're planning our streets. Um, you know, certainly getting the first protected lanes, I'm starting to see, you know, and I guess, you know, it goes, does go back to the, the new face for an old broad where it's like we did a demo project. And I think, you know, the, the demonstration methodology, that, that prototyping that became Memfix um, and is now being kind of deployed by in places like the medical district, um, you know, that Memphis was really a leader in that. So I think that's an important milestone to note, um, this kind of quick build tactical urbanism approach to redesigning streets. Um, you know, bike share definitely, um, you know, that was, that was a big win for the city. Um, gosh, there's so many things. Well, let me, uh, let me ask Nick, Nick, what are you looking back over the past sort of decade or so? What do you, are there other things that were sort of trans transformative that, that um, come to mind or projects you were you've been involved with since you've been in your position that you think really helped move the needle yeah um you know i i'm from the memphis area originally i, I grew up here um but really when these initial period you know started you know john paul was talking about um i had moved away from memphis so i was watching all of this happening um uh, from abroad, from when I was living in Germany, but also some time down in Texas, um, and really just envious <laughs> to be outside of my hometown when finally all this excited, exciting change was starting, um, and really was just kind of you know hankering for the opportunity to come back and be a part of it, because um, I remember you know reading about those early fights with bike lanes on Madison Avenue on Cooper Street. Um, uh, Walnut Grove, uh, you know, into Shelby Farms Park, um, and just wanting to be a part of it. Um, I mean, for me, the highlights, you know, John Paul already mentioned several of them. I think one was, I guess it was in 2013, uh, when Memphis was selected to be a part of the Green Lane Project from People for Bikes. That was huge. It was, it was. And I'm not sure if many Memphians really appreciate how huge it was. Like we were selected for this national program with the likes of, you know, I think New York City, um, I want to say maybe Portland, Oregon, Austin, Texas. So like all the cities you would think of as being like the no-brainers for biking, bike infrastructure. And then there was us, <laughs> like against all odds, basically. Um, so that was certainly a, a major milestone. Um, uh, and then, you know, even like the, the Shelby Farms Green Line, not an on-street facility, but I think it um, ushered in a sea change of the way that Memphians really thought about the city, thought about the opportunities here, and specifically um, that, you know, biking can be an option here that people would be interested in. I think, I mean, the, the Greenway also, or the Green Line, um, it, it's also a good indicator of, you know, when it's not just government, it's you've got kind of private nonprofits in terms of the conservancy who get involved. Um, you've got both city and county governments. Because I think then, you know, of course, the Harahan Bridge, the big river crossing now, um, I mean, I, I don't think anybody thought 
that was reality. I remember, you know, we were doing the MPO's bicycle and pedestrian plan, uh, and I think Greg Maxted, uh, who was working with Charles McVeigh on that, came in and was like, "Hey, we want to put this uh, this river crossing over here," and we were like, "Well, okay, there's no." This isn't a fiscally constrained plan, so essentially you can do whatever you want. Let's throw it in there. And then to see that really quickly become a reality through the TIGER program, uh, I mean, that was transformative in my, in my mind, too. I agree. And um, one thing neither of you mentioned, um, which I'm proud of on behalf of, you know, the advocacy community is our, um, our city's um, intentional focus on equity in building out the infrastructure and also the bike share program. I know People for Bikes supported that and continue to, but, um, and of course there's, we could do a whole podcast, I mean, a whole podcast radio show just about that. I will say, I mean, that is, that's always going to be, um, you know, a kind of a work in progress, I think. Um, you know, and that was certainly a, kind of a personal journey for me from coming from this, oh, bikes are going to save the city or save the world kind of perspective to really understanding that you can't, I mean, this is community development writ large, I think. It's like when you go into a space, into a neighborhood, into a community that, you know, you should be in listening mode um, and that, Yes, we want to make sure that a network kind of serves everybody, but we've also got to listen to the concerns of the, the folks living in those neighborhoods. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we've, we've done, made some progress and still have some ground to cover. If you're just joining us, we're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR-FM, and we're talking to John Paul Schaefer and Nick Euler about the local bike infrastructure scene. So, Nick... Question for you, um, and John Paul, I'm interested in your perspective as well. It's like, um, so where are we today? I know our city doesn't necessarily like to compare itself to other places, but we went, I know we went, we started at below the curve, if that's the right expression. We've made a tremendous amount of progress. Do you feel like, I want to talk in a minute about what what the future looks like, but do you feel like, you know, our system, our bicycle culture is robust for a comparable city? Um, are we, I mean, you're the guy that looks at all the numbers and um, you don't need to, you know, give us those numbers, but I'm interested in what you think about sort of the state of the, the state of the system, as it were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, if, if you look back at the last 10 years, you know, really it's around 2010 where I put like our, you know, the movement to make Memphis more bike friendly really started. Uh, the progress that we have made in the last decade is phenomenal. Like you mentioned earlier, the very first bike lane in the city was on Shady Grove Road. It was less than two miles long. Uh, that was in 2010. We were the 18th largest city in the country at the time. And that's all we had in terms of bike lanes or bike infrastructure, you know, really of any kind. And here we are in, in 2020. We now have... Uh, close to 300 miles of on-street and off-street facilities. Uh, half of that is on-street bike lanes. Um, we are adding on average about 20 miles of new facilities every year. That number alone, if you look at a lot of pure cities, is... Um, is, is impressive. Like I, I share that with my, my colleagues, my peers in, in other cities, um, even cities bigger than us. And 
that's big for them. <laughs> they don't even add that many in a year. And so I think it's, um, it's a testament to the hard work that was done in those early years of, of getting these kinds of changes really institutionalized um, in the city um, to the point where now whenever a road is repaved, there's a good chance it's going to get a bike lane. Um, so infrastructure-wise, you know, I think we're, we're rolling along and um, making pretty good progress. Um, I think we've learned other challenges along the way and other areas that need attention um, to, see, to see more and more people actually take us up on the opportunity. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's amazing that we've added so many and we're doing it at such a high rate. That's really great. The um, John Paul, any, before I move on to sort of looking ahead, anything you want to add from sort of the advocate's perspective about where you think we are today? Um, I mean, I would agree with Nick. Uh, you know, we're worlds beyond where we were 10 years ago. Um, you know, I think some of the other challenges, there's, there's really no way to kind of build infrastructure to get yourselves out of kind of such a low density kind of land use pattern. And, you know, I think now that the city's got a plan for, you know, kind of, re, you know, increasing density because it's going to also affect transit. I mean, it's the kind of thing like you can't serve a 350 square mile city well with transit, you know, the pop population density that we have. And I think as we, you know, see more um, kind of rebuilding in the core of the city and those older neighborhoods, I, I think you'll you just continue to see kind of an increase in usage uh, and start to see those facilities make a lot more sense. So, Nick, I know your job keeps you in the weeds a lot because I look at the the website blog you maintain. Mm -hmm. um, but I also know that you're, you know, you're a person of vision so what does the future look like locally in terms of continuing to build out the network um, in addition to sort of individual segments? Um, are there big projects you want to see happen uh, or is there a particular goal we're working toward? What's the future look like? What's your desired future? Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess my desired, my ultimate desired future would be... Um, that uh, you know, m most Memphians would um, see people riding bikes on the street for transportation and not think anything about it. Right? It's just normal here. It's a normal uh, presence in our city. Um, I kind of think about that a lot sometimes. Like, what's the what's the critical mass number we have to reach? I guess for for bicycling to be um, perceived by the average Memphian as, you know, quote unquote normal and accepted on our streets. What is that number? Is there is there a magic number? I, I don't know. I think it depends. I mean, you can look at cities um, like I, for example, would use um, Washington, D.C., just as a, as a, a, a reference where. Um, in my opinion, at least, you go to Washington, D.C., you see a number of people riding around, uh, like enough to say that, oh, yeah, bike lanes are being used well. People are actually biking. But the, the mode share for biking in D.C. is only around 5%. Okay. 5% 5 of all trips being taken, you know, um, by bike to get to work. Um, so that number might not be as high as some may, may think it is. But you're right. I mean, and they have lots of protected bike lanes 
And so it is the system and the writers are very visible. I agree with you. Yeah. And also to get to the point where um, when we talk about biking in Memphis, people don't automatically think of Lycra, spandex, $5,000 bikes. That The understanding is we're talking about biking of all kinds. Um, it doesn't really matter what you wear, what kind of bike you're using, that, um, you know, biking for everyone. Um, for specific projects, you know, uh, I think it's great that the, the Hamp line is now open. It's created this connection that previously didn't exist. And Thank I really, God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> John Paul and I are like, it took, I took a while. It took a while. <laughs> about, about 10 years almost. <laughs> Something like um, that. <laughs> but I'm really optimistic that it will be a um uh it will open people's minds uh maybe more than previously and be a catalyst for more kinds of improvements um and changes to our streets um like it. It's really the first uh, facility of its kind in the city, you know, true physical separation, protection um and already, you know, I'm hearing I've been receiving uh, requests from some residents, you know, can we do something like that on my street or in our area? And, you know, having to explain, like, I'd love to. Uh, money's it, involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get out the giant checkbook. <laughs> right, right. Well, that was actually a question, a kind of a question I had. The, um, the, you know, a lot of the segments that are going in that are connecting the network, fortunately, are things that can be um paid with the regular repaving budget. But some of the projects we've talked about today that are transformative, like the hemp line, like the hair hand, required a lot of I mean a lot of vision, but also a lot of private fundraising. Is there anything like that in the pipeline? Not necessarily that you know what's gonna happen, but that we're planning for that you would like to see happen. Yeah. I mean um so I think one great example is you know, we already have a project in the works to continue the Shelby Farms Green Line west past Tillman, where it currently ends today, continue um, into um, uh, Toby Park um, around uh, Flicker and Avery. Um, but currently, as it currently stands, there's no funding in place. There's no like concrete plan to extend it. The next logical step from there really into Midtown. To me, that could be a game changer. Um, and so, you know, in my head and, and my spare time, that's what I kind of daydream about, like what that could look like. Um, but I certainly see opportunity there for, you know, public-private partnership to help see that be completed. And, you know, we can look at the, uh, the medical district where for the last few years now, um, we don't have to dream about or imagine it. We've been seeing several great examples of that public-private partnership um, where we've partnered with the Medical District Collaborative to really undertake transformative changes on several streets around the Medical District, like Manassas, MLK, and The Edge, to go above and beyond what the city can do on its own through a basic resurfacing project. Yeah, that those projects are great. So, John Paul, what about you? What's the, as you look ahead, I mean, you're you're moving on to... I want to say bigger and better things because that can't possibly be the case. But, but for Memphis, your hometown, uh, what is the what's your desired future in terms of 
um, building out the network or and so continuing to support the growth of a bicycling culture? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I, I think Nick's right. You know, it is those projects that tend to have a higher price tag and therefore are more difficult um, that will be transformative. I and mean, I think in the case he's talking about, you've got to go over active rail lines. You know, that's that's a great example. We have these kind of barriers that, that stand in the way in terms of connecting different neighborhoods, because I think that's really the key, is making sure that, you know, Binghampton can get into that section of Midtown where there's going to be the new fairgrounds redevelopment. Um, you know, I think another important piece beyond the infrastructure certainly is going to be, you know, that bicycling doesn't just become normalized per se, but it becomes kind of like an active selling point. Um, you know, one thing that I've loved seeing um, People for Bikes has a new tool called Ride Spot, and you can kind of create routes and put pictures and stories into them. Um, and one of the team members said, hey, you know, it'd be great to see kind of a Memphis history ride. And I actually went in there and looked, and there are already elements of, uh, for say, you know, say the Memphis uh, Heritage Trail that's hitting a lot of those civil rights uh, era um, um, you know, monuments and, and locations kind of throughout the city. Um, you know, it, it'd be great to see, you know, an, an industry or some, some opportunity for economic development prop up around, you know, using bikes to get people around it for tourism and things like that. Is that a user generated uh, tool? It is at the moment, you know, there, I've seen, for instance, the, um, Innovate Memphis, uh, I believe Sylvia over there who runs the, the commute options program is putting some routes in there. Um, I think, you know, uh, the works may have had a route in there from one of their glide rides. Um, so, but it, I mean, it's out there, it exists now, um, and anybody can go in and kind of track their right routes, but again, building those routes that somebody else could explore, uh, kind of on their own, uh, is also a great component to it. Well, this is probably a, you know, bigger question that we have time to deal with today, but I'm going to ask it anyway, of course. How do we, I mean, how does that perception get changed? I mean, shout out to the glide rides. I was on one a couple weeks ago. And um, of course, there's, you know, various marketing campaigns. And I feel like we've made progress as a community. But you know, how do you, how do you Change, a per change that perception, and then how do you just get more people on uh, on bikes? We've done so much. I just feel like we have done a lot. We've done, done Explore Bike Share. We've really made it accessible. We've invested in community things. Is it just doing more of that and just working it and just looking for prog incremental progress till we get where we need to get? Uh, you know, there, it has to do with the message and the messengers um, and kind of representation and who is leading um, bicycle advocacy. I mean, it has, and this is something that advocacy struggles with writ large, I think, for bikes. Um, it's continued to be very white dominant. Um, and there's a lot of work, you know, just active work to, to change that, to shift it. But um I mean, I think that's a huge component to it. It's 
when you're talking about getting people over a fear of getting on a bike for whatever reason or a stigma that they associate with biking or anything like that, I mean, it's really going to matter who is approaching them um, and the comfort level with you know, with that because it's the ultimate goal is, I mean, it's kind of a community thing. That's the whole thing with group rides is that uh, it's this community of people who come out. I went on the, I think the week before you on the, the South Memphis Glide Ride and it was fantastic. Um, you had all, people of all ages and skill levels and all different kinds of bikes because um, it is very fun. I mean, that's the thing. Riding a bike is fun. Well, it seems there's been a, a, a big increase in um, black bicyclists, um, certainly recreational riders, it seems like. And um, that's my perception anyway. I'd love to do to sort of drill down in that and do um, have some folks on the show to talk about that. But Nick, anything you want to add to that in terms of what we need to do? Is it just doing more of what we're doing or anything else you have? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the glide rides is a great example. And it's, you know, we, the glide rides originated from the big jump project, which is yet another um, feather in the city's cap that was awarded to us by people for bikes. Um, and so the whole idea there is really what you're getting at is, you know, we to make bicycling seem more appealing and available to, you know, residents of South Memphis, they had to see people who look like them riding around and, um, and to feel comfortable doing that. So, you know, we, we got together with um, the Works Incorporated and also um, Revolutions, uh, Bike Co-op, to really start that for the first couple years and i've just been so um you know just thrilled to see it's kind of taken off on its own now um and become a regular event in the community um you know i would say i really feel that infrastructure is an important part in terms of getting more and more people on a bike and actually choosing to ride a bike i really think infrastructure is key i think a majority you know, maybe a majority, but at least a fair share, large share of people would ride a bike for some trips, at least, you know, maybe not to work, but, uh, you know, to the store to pick something up down to a friend's house, to a restaurant, to a bar, to hang out with some friends, to the park, that sort of thing. They would do that if they feel safe, if they were interested in doing that. I mean, they had the interest to do that and they would, if they felt safe. And I think, uh, a lot of that progress I was talking about earlier with the bike lanes, um, it's great, but it's kind of all like first generation designs. And we've learned over time that to really have a, a facility that feels comfortable, that feels safe for most people, you know, an eight year old girl up to an 80 year old woman, it needs to be physically separated. It needs to be physically protected. Uh, intersections are key. You can't just have the bike lane disappear, you know, as you're approaching the intersection and then you know, you're on your own. Good luck to get through, make it to the other side. Um, so, you know, as much as we could do with kinds of programming activities, um, outreach, it's all important, has its place. But uh, I think infrastructure is key <laughs> to um, having people really feel that they can do it and that they're welcome to do it. Great. Well, thank you both so much for being on the show today. I've been talking to John Paul Schaefer, 
with pe- now with People for Bikes and Nick Euler from the city of Memphis talking about the city's bicycle infrastructure, where we are today, where we're going. And I appreciate both you guys coming on. Stay tuned, everybody, because after the break, Charlie Santo, one of our regular commentators, is going to be here to talk more about the local transportation system and other subjects. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Emily Trenum. This is Memphis Metropolis on WYXR-FM. I'm pleased to welcome uh, Charlie Santo, who's um, chair of the City and Regional Planning Department at University of Memphis, one of our regular commentators. And so welcome back, Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Emily. Good to be back on the show. So the um, I know you've had an, you had an opportunity to hear the discussion I just had with John Paul Schaefer and Nick Euler about sort of looking back present and future of bicycle infrastructure in Memphis. There's been just tremendous changes over the last decade. And, you know, we've all been very involved in advocating for those. Uh, So I just wanted to get your perspective on that. I know you, you know, you have lived a number of different places uh, besides Memphis and you moved here from Portland. So I'm interested in, and you so your personal perspectives on what you heard and then how you see the um you know the bike infrastructure changing the community over the past decade or so and and if and if you want to jump in about you know what you would like to see um we could talk about sure. that as well yeah so perspectives i i've had this realization in the last couple of years that i've been in memphis for a long time now and i can't use the same sort of mental time markers to delineate things that happened a long time ago believe me i moved here in 1992 and yeah. i'm just telling people i'm not from memphis <laughs> i mean so i used to think like, <laughs> yes yeah, you are yes you are like the shelby farms green line was constructed after i moved here so it's not that long ago right yeah it is like the herring administration was a long time ago <laughs> Um, so yeah, anyway, so I lived in, in Portland for four years before we moved to Memphis. I was there getting my PhD. Um, and so my wife, Courtney and I, we had, by the time I finished school there, we had two very young children. And so, but we got by very easily as a, as a one car household in Portland, which is, you know, it's kind of the, the biking and transit Mecca. And so I would bike, um, about two miles from our apartment to campus or take transit and the key is is the frequency because so I could I could leave my apartment at whatever time I wanted, I didn't have to schedule it. Uh, step outside and have a choice of whether I hop on the bus or the streetcar, and they would both you know take different routes but get the same place. And whichever one came first, I would get on. Uh, we moved to Memphis in 2005, and we survived for maybe a year as a one car household. Um, and I, I at first I biked less. I did pick it back up after a couple of years after I kind of got the lay of the land. But at first it was, yeah, because there were, there weren't bike lanes. Right. So we lived in Cooper young. And so 
from Cooper Young campus, you can go on central uh, or southern as a straight shot. But biking on southern, um, it wasn't even that I didn't feel safe. It just didn't feel like something people did. Um, so I didn't do it. Well, there's a bike lane yeah. now, but there wasn't for a long time. And and cars haul, they they drive fast. And there's the a frigging train <laughs> that runs by as loud and scary. That right? too. So, um, so, but I did I did take the bus. The I think it was the 35 route that ran along Southern. I'm not sure that that route exists anymore, but it would come once an hour. Um, and so you have to like be ready when that's when it's coming. And on the, I remember this on the way home, I would get near New York, which is the street I lived on. And I'd ring the bell and almost every time the driver would just keep going and I'd have to get up and Hey, yo, <laughs> stop the bus. And it was because he didn't expect anybody that lived in Cooper young to be on the bus. Um, so it was just a different experience. And of course, that was before we had Uber and Lyft. So if the bus is not on schedule and you're running late, yeah, you're out of yeah. luck. So, um, but yeah, so now we, we've moved a couple of different places since we've been here. Uh, but now we live uh, on the Shelby Farms Green Line, right near near Highland. And um, our ha our backyard actually backs up to the Green Line. So I can open the gate and sort of walk down the hill and be on the green line. So we're, you know, we bike pretty often for recreation on the, on the green line. Um, are you a, a frequent green line biker? Yeah, for, for, um, for recreation. I mean, I had a very similar experience to you. I moved here from New York and the same kind of thing. First of all, I walked everywhere and but yeah, the the subway and the bus. I took I love taking the bus, even though it took longer than the subway. But you just walk outside, and the bus came by, um, and you didn't have to schedule it, and it was always it always ran. I mean, you didn't show up for the bus, and it, the bus didn't show, which which happens here, and it was frequent. You you mentioned that. I think frequency yeah. is key. Yeah, it is. Um, but but is your relationship? I mean, do you, do you utilize bike? I mean, the bike infrastructure for transportation at all, or um, has your relationship to the to that changed? You know, over the last yeah. 10 years so for a while there, um, I when we I lived one of the places we lived was on kind of near the intersection of North Parkway and East Parkway, which is also the intersection of Summer and Tresvent, <laughs> the lovely roads with two names. Um, and so when we lived over there, I would bike, this was before Broad Avenue was what it is now. Right. So I would bike, uh, over to Scott street and go South on Scott street and then bike on broad, um, over through high point terrace and up to campus, uh, pretty regularly. And then, you know, our kids got older and ended up in two different schools. And so we had to sort of split driving. One of us drove one of the kids and the other drove the other kid. So that kind of, you know, dislodge that but we we do especially during the pandemic times like back in march courtney and i got really into biking on the green line um and she she got into it so much so that she's one of the people in in spandex now <laughs> like she oh, did wow. a couple weekends ago I've, she did a, a hundred kilometer bike ride um so she's like serious recreation biker now that is serious well, I mean, so talk a little bit about, um, you know, just how the, 
what the impact of the of the you know finally building out the bike infrastructure network has had on the city because you know one thing when I talked to John Paul and Nick we talked about I think sort of the nuts and bolts of infrastructure and and you know building out the connections between pieces of the network so it's a whole unified but we didn't really talk that much about the um about the impact on neighborhoods, except as it relates to bike share and the emphasis on equity. But I know in in some communities, I don't know how much in Memphis, but certainly in some communities, you know, bike lanes are connected rightly or wrongly with gentrification. And, you know, who is this really for? And um, have is there any, you know, research you've seen on that or have you seen have you seen any evidence of that happening just any thoughts you yeah i mean there was this interesting here in memphis there was this interesting um and maybe it was only in like the little planning circles that that we run in but there was this little sort of a backlash on on bike infrastructure in memphis um there was this article uh an academic journal article um that a couple of folks wrote uh and it was basically the point of the article was that um, this infrastructure in Memphis was being built and specifically for the creative class and, and done in the way that was kind of supporting business interests. And here we have this high poverty, you know, high minority city and the bike infrastructure is not really helping everyone evenly. In fact, it's the argument in, in the article was that it was contributing to gentrification, um, which is interesting. I, I don't really subscribe um, to that notion in this case. And if you look at the, what they were looking at in the article was basically, they were looking at two different things, right? So it was the, the bike lanes on Madison Avenue and then the, the Harahan Bridge, Big River Crossing. Um, and they used the, the argument about the Madison Avenue bike lanes was that these bike lanes were put here uh, as, a, as an effort to, to promote amenity-based development and this consumerist discourse that was all about gentrifying. And their evidence for this was that they looked at, there was an online petition, right, when they were considering building these bike lanes. And so they looked at the, the comments in the online petition, and a lot of the, the comments were saying, hey, this is going to be good for business. <laughs> but the reality, like the context of it, the context matters. And the context was there was a question uh, in this online survey that's the question was basically, will bike lanes negatively impact businesses? Well, and I was very involved in that whole effort. And one of the reasons was that we asked that question is because a number of the businesses right. post it. And and the advocates believed, and I very much still believe this, that it is good for business. Yeah. Just also to slow the traffic down. That was part of it, not to digress, but part of the bike lane effort was to slow the traffic down on Madison Avenue, make it safer for pedestrians so you could see the businesses. And I think it's done all of that. Of course, I live right off Madison. I'm not unbiased, but I think that's been, I think the effort's been successful. Yeah, I, I agree. But yeah, it's kind of, it's just funny that, you know, they use that as evidence of that. Well, yes, look at all these people that are behind this for business reasons. Well, the reason that question was asked like you said, it's because people were saying this is going to be bad for business. And then the, the the Harahan Bridge, basically they looked at demographics in the census tracts near the Harahan Bridge, which is basically looking at, you know, downtown. And they said, well, over this 
12 year period between 2000 and 2012, there was this increase in the white population um, as if the Harahan and the Harahan bridge hadn't even been constructed yet. <laughs> like the crossing hadn't been constructed yet. Uh, totally ignoring all of the other things that were causing that, which was mostly, you know, hope six the demolition of public housing and being, being replaced with market rate housing. Um, but you know, it's, it's a tricky issue because there is, um, in reality and in the literature, there is an association between bike lanes and gentrification. Um, but if you look at it, it's complicated, right? Like if you look at it, if, if biking were just for sort of bougie white folks, you'd expect most of the people that commute by bike to be bougie white folks, but that's not the case. The numbers don't show that. The majority of the bike commuters in Memphis are black, which is reflective of our population. But that's also true nationally. Uh, a greater share of people who commute by bike are, are non-white. It's largely black and Hispanic. Is that a function? Is that a function of income? Yeah, that's. I think that's. I think that's right. I mean, it's like transit. There's there's two types of, of bike commuters. There's the people that do it because they want to, and the people that do it because they have to. Uh, so it's akin to choice riders and sort of captive riders. Um, and those people who do it because they have to are largely immigrant and minority populations. Um, who benefit from bike lanes because they do. Safer. Yeah. If, if the bike lane infrastructure is set up in a way to support people in, in lower income neighborhoods and make connections to jobs. And that's what cities have to be careful about is, is, you know, the minority of, of bikers are these people who are like Courtney <laughs> putting on the spandex and going on the hundred K bike ride. Um, and if they get, if that minority gets more of the attention and we start building bike lanes specifically to meet the needs of the hightailers, um, then there's a problem. But I, I think that our, the folks in Memphis have been pretty intentional about that. Don't, don't you, do you think so? Absolutely. I mean, if there's, a repaving going on. And not all cities do this. Carl Wagon should start this and Nick has hasn't continued it. If there's a repaving project done and that can that street can accommodate bike infrastructure, they're yeah. putting it in, really, which is what needs to happen. That's why we I think we've gotten so many um additional miles is, you know, doesn't always connect initially. That's another mm -hmm. complaint people have. You know, they put a bike lane on these three blocks. And unfortunately it's a little bit of a patchwork initially, yeah. but yes, it's so I much agree. more cost effective to do it when you're doing the repaving, um, you know? Well, and I remember, I mean, um, I mean, I agree with you. I was, you know, very involved in advocacy around bike lanes at the very beginning. And uh, I mean, a couple of things, I think, first of all, you know, when you drive around the neighborhoods, you've always seen a lot of people getting around on bikes. So it was always very clear that bike riding generally was not something that, um, yeah, the, the spandex wearing. It's not an exclusive club. It's not an exclusive club. Um, and the other thing, I th and this is um, a little bit of a different subject, but, you know, really took political leadership to... Um, to get here because I remember, you know, Mayor Horton, of course, we worked very closely with his office, getting a lot of backlash initially that this, you know, he was just catering to white people that wanted bike lanes. And, he, you know, there was a lot of public forums when he was questioned about it. And he was very, um, 
he pushed back against that. And he said, you know, this is not, this is for everybody, you know, it's safety. Um, you know, bike riders are just as entitled to use the streets as everybody. And these, these changes are for everybody. And he, I felt like he went out a little bit on a limb. Um, and I really admired him for, for that. And I think, you know, to a great extent, the current administration has built on that and probably because they've just, like I said, it's just not even, um, a yes or no decision a lot of times. Um, although they get public input on what the facility should look like. It's just a matter of fact that I think that's how to do. Yeah. And I think Nick has done a great job, um, keeping that going. Um, you know, I was, cause Kyle Wagenschutz was the first person to have that position and he was such a dynamic personality, uh, and so kind of well-known, um, that I was a little worried when he left and for pe- people, for bikes keep stealing all of our, <laughs> all of our talent. When he left, I was, I was a little worried that that, that emphasis would go away, but Nick's been great. Um, but yeah, you mentioned in, when you were talking with them about the, the struggle in getting, just getting a, a, the city to have a bike ped coordinator position. What was, what was that? What was that like trying to get to that? Well, let me just um, say this. First of all, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXRFM. And we're talking to Charlie Santo from University of Memphis City and Regional Planning Department about bike infrastructure in Memphis and just kind of a general discussion about that. So, so Charlie, to get to your question, um, it was really unbelievable uh, that the city would not budget for a bike and uh, pedestrian coordinator, which was is kind of just uh, not was a best practice long before we had one in a city of Memphis's size. And the reason was because there was leadership in the engineering department, longtime leadership that just did not believe in, it was all about the car and just didn't believe this kind of thing was necessary and would not, would not make any, any um, concessions. So ultimately the, we had to go to philanthropy to get them to agree to fund the creation of that position. And once that happened, it really, uh, the, similarly, the engineering leadership changed, which was connected to their posture on, um, uh, their posture on, um, bike infrastructure. I think John Paul and Nick alluded to that in their discussion and the leadership of an engineering changed philanthropy stepped up and, and kind of the rest is history. Kyle did a great job and then Nick has done yeah. a great job. I completely agree. We've had great sort of on the ground. And then what initially that had to be half in the MPO. Mm-hmm. I mean, the city wouldn't even fund it. So yeah, we, we had to go to philanthropy as a, as a common refrain uh, in, in the world of community development in Memphis. Yes. Our benevolent so, um, shadow government. <laughs> exactly. I would think we're, things are a little more enlightened now, but sure. I guess you, that's an arguable yeah. point. So one of the things um, I wanted to ask you about one thing we talk about is how, you know, bike infrastructure can sort of unlock access to uh, 
spaces that are public spaces that are not necessarily easy to get to if you don't have a car. And I know you have a couple a couple of public spaces you feel that way about. So um, so tell me what you think about. That. Yeah, I mean, I I've, I've been thinking about public spaces and the way people use public spaces a lot lately. And it's, I think you, there's a lot of change um, that's in this case is facilitated by this kind of infrastructure, but a lot of change in the way people use public spaces that's been driven by the pandemic um, and, you know, outside being safer and, um, you know, things not being used the same way anymore. The, you, you've seen a lot of kind of reclaiming a public space um, and I, for me, where I see that most is, is downtown along the riverfront on Riverside Drive and the riverfront parks. Um, and it's just part of a bigger picture of how, you know, our, our streets existed before cars, believe it or not. And <laughs> before the prominence of cars, streets belong to people. Um, and there was a whole, you know, campaign in the 30s that gave the, the prominence of automobiles and, and sort of, you know, made pedestrians the people who were uh, not supposed to be on streets. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that you can read about that. Uh, the, the criminalization of, of jaywalking, right? The, the crossing the street in the middle of the street become a crime. Um, but so earlier in the, in the pandemic, back in June, um, Courtney and I went for a walk downtown on the riverfront uh, at sunset, and it was it was a different um, it's a dif- different feeling than I'd ever had on on the riverfront downtown. It was it was I would describe it as being authentically Memphis. Um, you know, there was no music fest crowd, there was no tourists uh, from Beale Street. It was just a lot of actual Memphians using the public amenities of the city, using their riverfront. And we walked from the Fourth Bluff to Tomley Park. Uh, and there were just people out, you know, picnicking and walking dogs and teens zipping around on bird scooters, enjoying that Riverside Drive, which was closed. And so there's no cars. Uh, and it looked it looked like Memphis in a way that it usually doesn't. And so, you know, I know there's this for years now, this debate on Riverside Drive, whether it should remain four lanes and automobile traffic should be closed down altogether, should be two lanes. There's been, you know, trial versions of various approaches to it. Uh, and it just feels like we can get by without having automobile traffic uh, on, on that road. There's other roads uh, and there is a different way to use that space. Um, I don't know. Where where do you stand on, on Riverside Drive? I don't have an opinion about it necessarily. For sure, I think there ought the traffic ought to be slower and there ought to be more facilities for parking, bicycling, pedestrian usage. I don't know whether there it should be closed to cars. The um, but you know, and all the sort of um, brouhaha, as it were, about the new design for Tomley Park. Um, I think one thing that people haven't necessarily thought about lately, but it's a big part of that effort is doing a better job of connecting the riverfront amenities to the city. Because even though we do have this beautiful riverfront, it's not always easy to access. I was having a conversation someone some someone recently about MLK Park and which is a yeah. gem and is and a hidden gem. It's huge. It's beautiful. It has like 
you know, it's kind of like Overton Park. And it's not, I wouldn't say it's tucked away, but it's not easy to get to. I have biked there once. It's not easy to get to on bikes. And I think part of the overall strat, I mean, we're all, like I said, criticizing, you know, this latest studio gang plan. And, but it's, but a big part of what all these efforts mean to me is making it easier for people to access it. And I think the, you know, Riverside and the bike infrastructure, that's all coming. And I think that's going to be transformative and getting more people down there to utilize it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, and yeah, we could have a whole hour long conversation about the, the redesign uh, and the studio gang plan and all that good stuff. Well, I'm just saying that the, I think the, some of the more modest goals of that effort have been um, overwhelmed by the discussion of the design. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know certainly the riverfront, you know, um, partnership is that access to the amenities on the Mississippi river is very important to them and is being built into the whole strategy, which I salute. I salute that too. I mean, I think it's, you know, if we start to think about it as a park and not just a place where there's a music festival once a year, um, and you see people using that the whole area now because, you know, they've got to go outside and, and find different ways for, to recreate. Um, and I think it just opens people's eyes that, Hey, we can use this space differently. Well, and I agree that you know the the, the topic of of how people utilize public space, um, you know, changing because of COVID, but just evolving is a very interesting subject. I, I eventually want to do something on the the new parks master plan, and because the parks department's working mm-hmm. on a master plan, and maybe that's an opportunity because I do think that's a that in and of itself would be a whole interesting discussion to to you know do a deeper dive on on Memphis Metropolis. Amen. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Well, Charlie, thanks for coming. Um, this is Memphis Metropolis. I've been talking to Charlie Santo, and before that, John Paul Schaefer and Nick Euler, all about bike infrastructure in our community. So thanks, Charlie, and I will see you all next right, time. All right, see you next time. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. The show airs every Monday at 1, so I hope you'll check back next week. And stay tuned for Memphis Underground, coming up next. Thank you.